Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. How do scientists grapple with a temporary solution that could end up being worse than the original problem? Solar geoengineering is our topic today. And stick around after the interview. Investigative researcher Taryn McKinney is here with her analysis of the Biden administration's first 100 days. Over the past months, I've seen breaking science news about a drone helicopter flight on Mars, mRNA vaccines potentially being used to prevent HIV infection, and other breakthroughs and innovations I wouldn't have thought were possible even a couple of years ago. Also in that straight-out-of-science-fiction category for me is the concept of solar geoengineering, shooting particles into the atmosphere to block the sun from heating the Earth, thus cooling down the planet. Considering the scale of the climate crisis and how urgently we need to act, should we really try to throw all the science spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks? My colleague, Dr. Peter Frumhoff, Director of Science and Policy and Chief Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, joined me to talk about why that isn't actually a good idea. It turns out that even discussing solar geoengineering can have a lot of unintended consequences. Like if we start believing that it will slow down global warming, then we'll stop doing what we really need to do, which is cut emissions. So hold that spaghetti while Peter and I talk about the mechanics of solar geoengineering, its risks, and how when Harvard University ran up against the indigenous people of Sweden, they ended up having to take their balloons and go home. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Colleen. It's great to be here. So I wanted to talk today about the recent National Academies report that you were involved in. But first, can you start by giving just the briefest definition of solar geoengineering? Sure. So solar geoengineering broadly refers to proposed approaches, not yet realized, to cool the earth by reflecting sunlight, solar radiation, back to space. There are There are two main approaches that are being researched. One is called stratospheric aerosol injection, which essentially mimics large volcanic eruptions. The notion would be to send aerosol particles to the stratosphere, which would reflect sunlight globally. And the other is called marine cloud brightening, which would entail spraying sea salt into low-lying marine clouds to enhance their size and their reflectivity. So... Let me ask you a couple of just quick clarifying questions. So is this a permanent solution to global warming, or is it only as long as we're doing this practice? Well, let's be really clear. It's not a solution to global warming at all. It's at best a kind of stopgap measure. The only permanent solution to global warming is to reduce emissions, that is to say to stop sending uh, heat-trapping pollution, carbon dioxide and other uh, heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere. And we absolutely need to do that, and we need to do that quickly and decarbonize our economy. The notion of solar geoengineering is as a potential additional climate response to limit warming if in fact we cannot limit warming sufficiently quickly by the primary method we need to address, which is mitigation. To give people an idea of the potential harms, what are some worst case scenarios that might happen if we employed this technology? Well, there's simply a lot we don't know. So for example, in the case of stratospheric aerosol injection, we know from volcanic eruptions 
and the re response of the Earth's climate to the extent of aerosol particles that are uh, sent to the stratosphere, we were pretty confident that we'd see warming reduced for a period of time while those aerosol particles remain in the stratosphere. It's temporary. They would fall out over time. But we have computer models to help us begin to understand what some of the other effects would be with respect to changes in precipitation patterns, for example. But there's a lot that remains to be understood about the impacts on Earth's ecosystems, on the ozone layer, and on other patterns of climate changes. So it's really important that before any decision to deploy solar geoengineering might ever get made, that we better understand not only what the impacts might be, but how the technology could be responsibly or might be responsibly governed. There's a big landscape of unknowns here. There are significant risks to changes that we can't now foresee. And so it's very important that any, any deployment decision, should it ever be made, is based on much deeper understanding of both the risks and potential than we have today. That takes me back to the the report from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine that you worked on, and it was it, it largely focused on governance and the potential for beginning experimentation on solar geoengineering. So, can you tell me about uh, the report and what some of the conclusions were? So, the charge to the committee at the National Academies in writing this report was to develop a research agenda for understanding solar geoengineering technologies as a potential climate response, to understand the potential impacts, both positive and negative, on ecosystems and the atmosphere on, and on human society, and to understand the technical and social feasibility of these technologies, and then simultaneously to recommend a set of mechanisms by which research into solar geoengineering might be responsibly governed. And that's what we did. The Academy panel that I served on recommended that the U.S. government start a bounded uh, solar geoengineering research program over the next five years that would look at a range of uh, technical issues from physical science impacts, atmospheric chemistry, to questions about ethics, public participation and decision making about solar geoengineering research, and a whole range of social science questions about how a program might be designed, how we might build capacity in developing countries to participate meaningfully in, in such research. And it also simultaneously recommended a set of guidelines for how research should be governed, for example, to provide tight limits on the extent of outdoor experiments that might be done so as not to have experiments that would be at such a scale as to um, have an impact on the Earth's climate to make sure that there is a permitting system for such experiments, to make sure that there is meaningful public participation uh, in decision-making about how research is done, um, and, and to ensure that there's transparency and international cooperation in the research that's developed, and to put this in the responsibility of the federal government to coordinate this research under the auspices primarily of the U.S. Global Change Research Program, which is the same cross-agency body within the federal government that currently is responsible for the National Climate Assessment. Did the report touch on how to have meaningful and inclusive public engagement in the decision-making process? This seems very important 
And particularly given the recent scrapping of the, the Harvard Scopex experiment in northern Sweden, can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so let's start by talking about what Scopex is. Scopex is an experiment being proposed by uh, a set of researchers at Harvard University in which they want to release a very small amount, about two kilograms of aerosol particles into the stratosphere in order to test some very basic mechanisms about their dispersal properties. The aerosols they're planning to release are calcium carbonate, essentially chalk dust. And they want to better understand how these particles might be dispersed and how they might then incorporate that understanding into better computer models to understand the mechanisms by which that might be one day deployed in stratospheric aerosol injection. So they've raised funding, mostly from private sources, including notably from some fairly wealthy billionaires like Bill Gates, to initiate the research. It's um, just bringing a gondola tethered to a balloon into the stratosphere. They're proposing to do just some initial test flights of the mechanism of the balloon in an area in northern Sweden um, that was scheduled originally for summer of 2021. And they got significant pushback on the proposal to do this uh, mechanical test of their experiment by a number of Swedish environmental groups and notably by the council of the Sami people. The Sami people are the indigenous people whose native lands are in this portion of Sweden and other areas of Northern Europe. And the Sami council said, no, thank you. We don't want this research here. Not because they necessarily saw the experiments themselves or the test of the equipment itself as, as dangerous or risky, but rather because they saw the experiment as intentional towards potential future deployment, something that they feel strongly um, that they did not support. And the Harvard researchers, together with an advisory committee that had been established to provide recommendations, among other things, about public engagement, had not, unfortunately, taken the time in advance of announcing the uh, test flights to consult with the Sami people or other communities in Sweden over whether they would see these flights as uh, legitimate or not, as appropriate or not. And, you know, in hindsight, that was a significant error pointing to the importance of meaningful public engagement in decisions about solar geoengineering because the Sami community, as represented by the Sami Council, said, no, we don't want this. Uh, and so that's led to the postponing of the uh, test flights. And as I understand it, the research researchers at Harvard are now considering whether to look elsewhere to do these uh, tests, to do this experiment. And if they do, I think they will need to rectify this oversight and make sure they do a fulsome, meaningful um, solicitation of input from the publics, both in the region uh, in which the experiment is being proposed and more broadly, to get a bead on whether they can and should go forward. Peter, what would you say to people who see this as the first step to endorsing geoengineering as a climate solution? Well, the important thing to recognize is that geoengineering, solar geoengineering, is absolutely not a climate solution. It's a, at best, um, stopgap measure. Should we get into a moment in which we're seeing seriously disruptive climate change, and one or more nations decides to move forward with it. Right now, we have a research enterprise in solar geoengineering that's ad hoc. 
It's fragmented. It's mostly funded by private sources, venture capital, individual donors, and so on. It's not subject to any meaningful governance and oversight. And so the recommendations of the Academy panel were to try to provide a more robust oversight mechanism by bringing this into a federally funded program with real rules and guidelines for how that research should be done. It's absolutely essential that any research in this space be contingent upon a recognition that mitigation, reducing emissions and adaptation to unavoidable impacts are our top line solutions to climate change. Uh, the Academy panel was adamant about recognizing that at best, solar geoengineering is only an additional possible climate response. But the fact is we're not in a position today to make informed decisions about whether or not it might ever be a potential climate response. And so the guidance from the Academy is to ensure that the research is designed in such a way that it's just as likely to lead us to a decision that uh, concludes that we should never seek to deploy this as to one in which we might understand some bounded conditions under which it might be appropriate. But in no way should furthering of research in solar geoengineering responsibly governed uh, be seen as a substitute for mitigation. And if it ever became one, that research should be stopped immediately. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, additional resources, and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us reach more people. First, you can subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Another way to help is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. What mechanisms are in place to, to stop the research, if necessary? Well, the guidance of the Academy was to create a research program with oversight and, if you will, off-ramps so that there are mechanisms in place in the governance of it to stop research that's either not productive or tells us that the work is too risky and should not be continued. The mechanisms are transparency. The mechanisms are robust oversight. The mechanisms are meaningful public participation in decision-making, as there is for any body of re research that's potentially risky. And so it's very important that this be designed with those guidelines in mind. My greatest concern, to be honest, Colleen, in the context of supporting a federally funded research program is to make sure that the governance mechanisms are taken up just as fully as the uh, research proposals are. That is to say, we want to make sure that the recommendations on governance and the recommendations are on research are seen as an integrated whole. It's not a kind of um, uh, choose one but not the other set of options. And so it'll be very important to watch how the U.S. government and indeed other governments uh, might decide to move forward building on these recommendations and work to ensure that the governance mechanisms are taken up just as fulsomely 
as those that are suggesting that research should be pursued. So, Peter, how have your colleagues who've been working on climate change for years reacted to this report? Well, it's an important question, Colleen. You know, all of us who've been working hard to uh, tackle climate change would really rather not be talking about risky technologies when we know what the core solutions are, right? We know what we need to do. We need to bring our uh, emissions to zero, to net zero, and not have any more carbon going into the atmosphere than coming out of it. We need to adapt and prepare to be resilient to the changes in climate that are now unavoidable. We know what we need to do. The technologies are available. It's really a matter of political will. It's a matter of time. But we've waited for so long to begin to address the climate problem at its root causes that we're in a tough place. I think, by and large, other climate scientists that I speak with, both at the Union of Concerned Scientists and more broadly, see value in research in solar geoengineering, recognize that it needs to be bounded and strongly governed, uh, and believe that we would be far better off if we put as much time and attention as possible into decarbonizing our economy and limiting the prospect that, whether it's the U.S. or another nation, uh, might decide to take it into their own hands to limit warming at some point using solar geoengineering technologies. But we definitely need some more information um, so that if anyone decides to use these technologies, we're better prepared to make informed choices about whether or not they should be furthered um, or stopped. And just to be super clear, no one should be getting the idea that you or the Union of Concerned Scientists endorse solar geoengineering, right? Well, unequivocally, we strongly oppose any deployment of solar geoengineering technologies. We recognize that they currently pose significant environmental, ethical, and geopolitical risks uh, and are not at all appropriate to be deployed. At the same time, we believe that researchers should better understand the potential and risks of these technologies, primarily using computer modeling techniques and monitoring the climatic impacts of events such as volcanic eruptions, basically the kind of natural analogs that we see to potential solar geoengineering technologies. And we strongly oppose any stratospheric tests of these technologies at a scale that could have any measurable impact on the Earth's climate. If any small-scale experiments move forward, we lay out several criteria by which we believe they must be um, and they must adhere, that they be governed by independent mechanisms to ensure that the experiments are of high quality and value and pose no environmental or, or legal or social risks, that funding for solar geoengineering experiments come only from governments and other entities that support mitigation and adaptation as their first-line solutions to climate change. And that importantly, really, I can't stress this enough, that any governance mechanisms for solar geoengineering must be transparent, they must be inclusive, and they must ensure meaningful engagement with climate-vulnerable communities and the public in order to ensure that public participation in decision-making over such research is full and transparent. So, Peter, this all feels like a bad science fiction movie. Do you have any uh, good old-fashioned good news that can bring to our listeners? 
Well, you know, people worry a lot about what's called the moral hazard of talking about solar geoengineering, that even discussions of it uh, might lead us to, to, to reduce our commitment to addressing the core problem by reducing our emissions. We all know what we need to do. And that worry has led folks to be quite concerned about possible research in this space actually um, exacerbating the problem. The fact is, is that there's just as much uncertainty about how people will respond to talking about solar geoengineering as there is about what its impacts might be. And there's some evidence to suggest that by having conversations about this technology and the recognition that we're at a point at which people are beginning to seriously consider it, that that might actually lead us to accelerate our ambition to reduce emissions in order to avoid any prospect of having to consider deploying sunlight reflecting technologies. The jury is definitely out on this. I know for me personally that the time that I've spent wrestling through the question of research and governance of solar geoengineering has led me to recognize that there's nothing more important that we can and must do than to aggressively and ambitiously bring our emissions to zero as swiftly as possible uh, and try to leave our ourselves and our children and our grandchildren a, a planet in which we're not disrupting it with either fossil fuel technologies or solar geoengineering technologies. So it's not exactly a hopeful note, but it's a prospect that these conversations necessary if undesirable, will actually motivate us even more to accelerate our ambition to solve the climate problem as we know we must by reducing our emissions. That's uh, it, It's a real wake-up call. Absolutely. Well, Peter, thanks for joining me on the podcast. This has been, um, you know, not the most upbeat conversation, but an important one. And um, I thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Colleen. If you've been a longtime listener to this podcast... You might remember that during the previous administration, we had a regular segment called Sidelining Science that covered the ways that science and scientists were being ignored and silenced during that time. I'm happy to say that we haven't had cause to dust off Sidelining Science under the new administration, but we haven't put it away forever because science can be sidelined regardless of who's in power. And we're watching the Biden administration just as carefully on their treatment of science and scientists. Now that we've passed 100 days under the Biden administration, UCS investigative researcher Taryn McKinney released a scorecard rating the administration on its science-related policies and appointments, along with a tracker detailing successes and areas for improvement. And she's agreed to share some of these highlights and challenges with you. Take it away, Taryn. Thanks, Colleen. It's been a relief to take a break from tracking attacks on science, but that doesn't mean we're giving the Biden administration a free pass. The Union of Concerned Scientists keeps an eye on every president. And what we've seen after Biden's first 100 days is pretty good with room for improvement. Now, last year, we gave clear recommendations for the next administration to restore science in decision-making. And it's gratifying to see that the Biden team is following a lot of our guidance. For the full scorecard, you can go to act.ucsusa.org slash Biden tracker. I'll give you the condensed version now by category, starting with UCS's bread and butter, protecting federal science. 
This is important because we need federal scientists to do their work free from political interference or special interests. My grade here is an A minus. Biden's done a pretty good job. In his first month, he signed a memo directing federal agencies like the EPA to strengthen their scientific integrity policies. He also revoked a terrible Trump-era executive order that required agencies to scrap two health and safety protections for each new one created. That's a great move on Biden's part. Now, the next category is HR-related, hiring scientists and letting them do their jobs. I'm giving the administration a solid B+, as they've already taken steps to restore the federal scientific workforce, which shrank significantly over the last four years. Thousands of scientific staff left civil service during that time, so it's a big deal that the Biden team is trying hard to bring the experts back. And he's done a lot more. Biden revoked one of Trump's executive orders that would have made it easier to fire federal employees for political reasons. He signed a memo requiring every science agency to have a chief science officer and a scientific integrity official. And he elevated his science advisor to the cabinet level, which UCS has supported for more than a decade. And on his first day, Biden revoked a Trump rule that required agencies to slash a third of their advisory committees, committees that are full of experts who help make sure the government follows the science. Biden has also announced 37 nominations to the most critical science leadership positions in government, and 19 have been finalized. Now, he's ahead of Trump and behind Obama in this area. If the administration works to make science committees more resilient and diverse, and if they fill more key positions in science leadership, then I'll bump that B plus to an A. Now, the next category is prioritizing underserved communities. I'll give them a B minus on this because although we've seen encouraging steps, we still need radical action. But while the last administration largely ignored environmental justice, Biden's team has prioritized it. The American Jobs Plan and EPA budget direct billions of dollars toward environmental justice work. The head of the EPA declared environmental justice an agency priority, and the CDC has declared racism a public health threat. A lot more is needed, but we are thrilled with these early steps. In the category of preventing conflicts of interest, I'll give the administration a C plus. Biden made an ethics pledge that keeps his staff from working as lobbyists for two years after they leave government. That's great news, but two years isn't long enough, and Biden should do more to make sure that his staff disclose all the skeletons in their closets. That's how we, the public, can root out conflicts of interest. Which segues nicely into my final category, increasing transparency. B minus here. So far, the Biden administration is doing far better than its predecessors. For example, Biden has tasked agencies with improving public access to federal data. But the White House says it won't release virtual visitor logs, a big problem, especially during the pandemic when many events are online. At UCS, we'll continue to track the administration's actions, celebrating progress, and when needed, demanding more. And once again, the full scorecard is at act.ucsusa.org slash Biden dash tracker. 
Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Peter Frumhoff. Our Biden administration tracker piece was brought to you by Taryn McKinney. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe, get a vaccine, and see you next time.